In response to demands that were galvanized by the death of George Floyd last year, the Asheville City Manager's Office called for a resolution to remove monuments that had been erected primarily at the turn of the 20th century to commemorate the legacy of the Confederacy in the city. On June 9 and June 16 last year, the Asheville City Council and the Buncombe County Board of Commissioners, respectively, passed a joint resolution to remove two Confederate statues located at the Buncombe County Courthouse in Pack Square Park. They further authorized the appointment of a joint task force and charged it with the responsibility of recommending action regarding the removal or the repurposing of the Vance Monument, a 65-foot-tall obelisk that was erected in 1897 to honor the memory of Buncombe County Navy and Civil War Governor Zebulon Vance. After completing its work, the 12-member task force voted to recommend that the monument be removed and submitted its recommendation to the city council last November. After further community discussions around whether to accept the task force recommendation or, as suggested by some, repurpose the monument as a symbol of unity for the entire community, the city council voted to accept the recommendation of the task force. Today, Marcus and I will talk to Ms. Savannah Gibson. Savannah is a member of the task force and will join us to talk about how their work unfolded and how and why they decided to recommend that the monument be removed. Join us for another conversation about history, memory, and remembrance. This will be a fitting follow-up to our conversation with former mayor of New Orleans, Mitch Landrieu. Welcome to another episode of the Waters and Harvey Show. I'm Darren Waters. And I'm Marcus Harvey. Thank you all for joining us again. We're so glad to be back here with you all in the audience. Marcus, I continue to get great feedback from everybody, from so many people. Not, I, I, It's probably not everybody. We probably couldn't respond to all of those messages, but there have been a lot of messages that have been coming through from people who are catching the show, who are enjoying the conversations that we've had. That show on uh, civic engagement really, really resonated with a lot of people. And again, I just have to take a moment here and talk about how uh, Seth and both Miranda were huge hits and stars on that show. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me. And I I think we really are in a moment um, in our country's history where people are searching for ways to connect to conversations that will help them make sense of and interpret uh, recent events, um, what happened over the past four years, um, and even before that. And I think uh, one of the one of the benefits of our show is that our show provides many points of entry mm-hmm. uh, for people to figure out how to how to begin to stage those conversations for themselves and make sense of what's going on. And I have to ask you, Marcus, did you start feeling like a train conductor in that uh, we had six people on one panel and I mean, navigating that. But I think we did a really good job with that. So we want to thank you all for the for the feedback that you're sending to us. We want to thank our guests who were part of that conversation for being there. We enjoy all of the guests that we have. Marcus, I'm also hearing from people. uh, There's one group in particular. I think it's a men's reading group that have been using the framing questions that we have uh, that we have uh, 
kind of been asking in the past series of shows about who are we and who do we wish to be as really to frame the conversations they're they're having. So, you know, hearing that type of feedback, it it like lets me appreciate again um, uh, the value of what it is that we're doing here through the Waters and Harvest Show. Yeah. And these and the questions that we've been posing, uh, uh, is there a we, who are we, who do we wish to be? Uh, these are not questions that have single answers, mm-hmm. right? They're not questions that have neat, tidy answers. Uh, they're questions that continue to uh, trouble the mind. And mm-hmm. so I'm not surprised to hear that there's a, a reading group that has been established around these questions because mm-hmm. Uh, you know, these questions take can take us down any number of different rabbit holes, mm-hmm. uh, but not fruitless or meaningless rabbit holes, the rabbit holes that I think can help us, again, um, uh, approach in a substantive, meaningful way mm-hmm. um, what it means, what it means to live in this country um, at the present moment and, and what and what it might look like to begin to um, imagine and work toward a more just society. Well, Marcus, you know, you, you're absolutely right. And I can't help but think that as we jump into this particular show here, looking at the, is, the issues of history and memory again, this has been a, you know, an ongoing theme on the show. And I'm sure that many of our listeners right now, many of those of you who are in the audience are thinking about that last conversation that we had with um, with Mitch Landrew. And we were so happy to have uh, an extra voice in that conversation, Malia Graves, who will be joining us from time to time, who's a second year student down at UNC Charlotte. But that conversation with Mitch, you know, was just really, I think, uh, very important to see what they did in New Orleans, to think about what is going on, not only uh, in in places like New Orleans and other places throughout the country, especially in the region of the South, but even to think about what's going on here at home, right here in Asheville, right here in North Carolina, around around history and memory, and especially, Marcus, the legacy of the Civil War. We've been, this has been an ongoing conversation for us probably ever since we started the show, because the first show that we did was about history and memory. Why is history important? We looked at the uh, the life and legacy of Carter G. Woodson. So, Marcus, you know, you and I deeply rooted in this space. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, I, I, I think, um, again, uh, the, the, the kinds of conversations that we're having um, around memory, um, the conversation that we had with, with Mitch Landrew, uh, I, I think is really deepening uh, many of the points that we tried to make on the show. And thinking about that conversation um, and thinking about, uh, you know, Malia's involvement in it um, as well, I was just really struck by the story that, that Mitch told about uh, how he came to the decision to take down, I think it was those four Confederate monuments in New Orleans. Mm-hmm. Um, and our, our listeners might recall that um, he's very, very good friends, I think, going back to childhood with the famous jazz uh, musician and composer, Wynton Marsalis. Mm-hmm. Um, and he consulted Wynton Marsalis um, um, uh, in his efforts to revitalize New Orleans. And he said, you know, would you, would you help me, Wynton? Wynton says, sure, I'll help you. But you need to take down these monuments, right? And so, um, and, and so that prompted really a, a not only a conversation between Mitch, Wynton Marsalis, and other um, local leaders, but it also prompted him to do some reflection, mm-hmm. which is really important about you know, yeah, why why haven't I really thought more seriously about this question of of, of monuments and public memory, um, and what and what might it do for the city? Uh, to, to, to rethink these monuments and perhaps even remove them. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that story was just really, really important uh, for listeners to hear. And I think it 
it it adds a level of concreteness to previous conversations that we've had around this question of monuments. Right, and so you, for those of you who are in the audience, if you if you haven't heard that show, we hope you go grab the podcast and listen to that show and also consider picking up Mitch's book, the book that he wrote, um, dealing with kind of outlining the story of how this unfolded in, in New Orleans for him. And Marcus, I can't help but think about the story that he told about Louis Armstrong as well and how Armstrong left New Orleans because of those monuments. It was one of the reasons why he left. And see, so it, that to me kind of resonated with me as a professional historian, because I've often thought, and Marcus, you and I have talked talked about this, that as a professional historian, I've often wondered and somewhat felt somewhat guilty that perhaps, you know, we as historians are constantly picking at wounds that we don't allow to heal. So for us, these monuments and these conversations around the Civil War, the legacy of the Civil War, the legacy of the Confederacy, I have often wondered how many people are really thinking about these things? Is it just us among the, the professional historians and the professional scholars who are thinking about these? things. But to hear Mitch tell the story about how, uh, no, you know, there were people in New Orleans who were, every time I passed by one of these monuments, it was a reminder that, you know, I'm not necessarily seen the way everybody else is in this space. So it was a really important and, and informative conversation for me to have as well. You know, here as we think about the history of, of the Civil War, the legacy of the Civil War and the Confederacy, again, I would like to remind those of you who are listening Marcus, I'm not missing that we are really in the 150th anniversary of Reconstruction. And so we are watching a re, I believe, a reconstruction of the narrative of American history. I think we're trying to right side it um, in a way to bring back in the story of how this healing that some people talk about the country having gone through after the Civil War was over. And, and I'm thinking here in my mind, of the conversation that occurred around the 50th anniversary of the battle at Gettysburg in 1913, and how when they met there at Gettysburg, both sides, former Confederates, former Union uh, Army uh, troops who were there for that event in 1913, and they talked about how the nation had healed. David Blight, one of those people that we interviewed, talked about, well, the healing had really come at the expense of African Americans. Because they were written out of that narrative. And so I'm watching this unfold now and I'm thinking, look, you know, this is, a, is this is an opportunity for us to correct this, this kind of what yeah, is essentially and, a false and, narrative. And, and the question for me is I'm, I, I find the language of healing curious uh, because I wonder what, <laughs> um, you know, what, what healing for whom, um, what exactly brought about this, this alleged healing. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think also about um, an article that I recently reread for, um, for one of the courses that I'm teaching. It's an article by um, the famous, now famous author, um, essayist, uh, Todd Nahisi Coates. Mm -hmm. um, he wrote a, uh, an article, as you, as you remember, um, entitled The Case for Reparation several years ago. And in that article, he talks about uh, uh, the need for what he calls a national reckoning. <laughs> And I think that the language of reckoning perhaps is, 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 is far more appropriate and far more helpful than the language of healing. Mm -hmm. um, as, far as, I, as far as I can tell, I'm not a historian. Maybe historians would challenge me on this. I see zero evidence that, 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 that any social, cultural um, healing 
occurred at any point in this country's history after after 1865. Right. right. Um, I, I I think what we find um, uh, um, is you know a, a sustained effort to avoid um, and mythologize uh, the Civil War. Um, and what happened subsequently. And so I think I think what is needed now, I mean, I think I agree with Coates too. I, I agree with his language of reckoning. Mm-hmm. Um, that I think what is needed is a kind of a, a kind of national reckoning. Now, how to stage that, how to how to sort of conjure the will to make that happen is an entirely different question. Right. But, you know, I think that the fact that we're still having this conversation in 2021 um, evidence is the fact that you know, no, you know, that there has been no reconciliation. There has been no healing. You know, there has been no experience of national unity after 1865. So how do we get there, Marcus? That's the question. I think one of the central questions in this conversation that we're going to have today and just, you know, to uh, to 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 let our audience know, we're, we're going to be in conversation with Savannah Gibson, who was a part of the Vance Monument Task Force here in Asheville. And we're going to hear from her about how this conversation here around Confederate monuments can unfold it here locally. You know, what 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 prompted this conversation? And I, I raised that point, Marcus, before we have Savannah join, join us here to say about the prompting, you know, these flashes of moments in our history where we seem to say, OK, we should deal with these with these issues. So if we look at the conversation with Mitch Landrew, you know, what prompted that conversation in New Orleans was the death of eight parishioners in in Charleston. Right. He and he talks about that. OK, we we have to have this conversation now. Even South Carolina said, OK, we have to look at the uh, at the uh, the continuation of flying the Confederate flag over the, uh, the state Capitol building at that moment. And it, it seems to me that we have a tendency in these moments to say, OK, well, we'll remove the Confederate flag or we'll start talking about monuments. And and we're and then once we do that, we're finished. So you have that moment where people are forced to have the conversation. The next moment was, which kind of brought us to this conversation again, Marcus, is uh, George Floyd's death last year, right? So everybody was galvanized to say, okay, we've got to do something. And I can't help but think Marcus here, and I'm sure that our audience has heard us talk about this uh, a number of times, will remember us talking about this, the conversation that we had with William Turner, Dr. William Turner, and the question that you asked him, you know, why does it take these moments um, to get us to kind of force our force us to look at these these serious issues, these serious social issues. And and Bill made the point that, well, you know, sometimes it takes us being smacked in the head uh, with a two by four, you know, just to remind us that, hey, you know, and he told the story of the mule. And I can't help but think about your reaction to, to that story and how it prompted you to think, well, th- is this what it takes each time for us to be serious about having these conversations? Yeah. And, you know, I, as as we often have pointed out on the show or has often been pointed out on the show, you know, I, I tend to live in the, the cynical or pessimistic camp when it comes to America's future. Uh, you tend to, to want to take up residence in the uh, in the optimistic camp. Um, but, you know, you know, just thinking about uh, Will Turner's story about the mule, this sort of this sort of analogical way of, of answering my question about why did it take George Floyd public lynching? to galvanize this movement, uh, it, it kind of deepens my cynicism, actually, um, that, you know, because, you know, the, the George Floyd death wasn't the first um, spectacularly public death 
of a black body at the hands of a police officer. Right. I mean, there were many before uh, that had taken place that didn't galvanize, you know, um, this kind of movement. And so, uh, yeah, I, I, I just wonder, I wonder um, uh, what else will be required um, to, to move the needle even further. And I think I will say this before before we move on. I think one, one thing that I've observed um, in this country, uh, I would say at least since um uh, the, the the Trayvon Martin episode is that uh, you know we're, we we seem very good at having conversations, right? We, we seem very good at at recognizing recognizing the need for conversations, but those conversations seldom lead anywhere meaningful, um, and they seldom cost us anything really, right? It's very easy to sit down and have a conversation about what's happening, uh, but what kind of skin do you have in a game? Right. What kind of uh, what what resources are you willing to allocate to address the issues that you're uh, you know about which you're conversing? Mm-hmm. Right. So I think we have to be very careful, um, you know, when we when we talk about the conversations around these issues, because these conversations can very easily become um, a kind of ruse or 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 or, or masks which are intended to hide um, really a disinterest in 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 a lack of commitment to bringing about any substantive social change. Well, Marcus, that's a good place for us to kind of take a, a short break. And we want to remind you that you're listening to The Watterson Harvey Show from Blue Ridge Public, Public Radio. And we're going to take a short break. Please stay with us. So welcome back to the Waters and Harvey show. Uh, we're talking about history and memory again, looking at what was going on, what is going on around conversations in the Vance Monument. Our guest today is Savannah Gibson. She is a member of the Vance Monument Test Task Force, and we're so glad to have her here with us to join this conversation around history and memory and the legacy of the Civil War and the legacy of the Confederacy. Savannah, thank you for taking the time to join us today. We're so glad to have you here. Thank you for having me. I'm really glad to be here as well. All right. So, you know, I want to, you know, without belaboring this, I want to just start, you know. So how did you end up on the Bats Monument Task Force? We know that the, mm-hmm. it was back in June of last year when both the city and the county decide, decided, OK, we're, we're going to finally have a conversation around the Confederate monuments here. And as Marcus and I kind of addressed, that was prompted really by, uh, by the death of, of George Floyd. And so it really, as we saw across the country, it galvanized us. And so this was the, 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 the city and the county decided to, to seat a joint task force. Can you tell us a little bit about how you ended up on this task this task force? Um, I almost did not apply. So they opened up applications for people to apply to be on the task force. And I'm actually not from Asheville. So I kind of felt conflicted about applying to be on a task force of a community that I wasn't really a part of. And I just gotten to kind of learn about like the history and kind of feeling weird about like taking up space from people who are in this community who I feel could would say the exact same things that I would say and have the exact same opinions that I would have. Um, but I was working with the Racial Justice Coalition and I talked to um, Rob, who is the community liaison for the Racial Justice Coalition. And he was like, I mean, you should do it. <laughs> and so <laughs> I applied and then I ended up getting chosen to be on it. And then now I'm here. 
<laughs> and I'm wondering, I'm Marcus, before you jump in here, with Savannah, were you surprised when you were one of the people who was selected? And, and there's a number of things to come back to to what you just said. But I was one. Were you surprised when you were selected to uh, to join the panel? I was very surprised. I was selected, honestly, and I was also kind of surprised that more of the people that I knew who were like from Asheville um, did not apply to be on the task force. But I think that's more telling of what people mm-hmm. feel about the whole situation. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. So, yeah. And, and Savannah, I'm, I'm, I, I think this is so interesting, especially given that you're, as you just said, you're not an Asheville native. So um, I'm curious to hear from you why, why you found it important um, to serve on, on the Vance task force. Uh, we know that this is, this has been a contra- a very controversial figure uh, locally, uh, at least since I've lived here, I've been living here now for almost 10 years. Uh, but I'm just curious to hear from you. I'm, I'm also a non-native. Um, I'm, I'm, a, I'm sort of a transplant uh, who has learned quite a, probably more than I would care to, to than I would care to learn about Sabine Vance. So anyway, I'm, I'm curious to hear from you about why you deemed it important as, as really as a transplant to serve on this task force. I think it was more so I wanted to make sure that there would be a pool of people who had the same opinion about why the Vance Monument should be removed mm. applying there so that they were forced to at least pick one somebody mm-hmm. <laughs> I thought that it would be removed so for me it was more just like I just wanted the to have those type of voices in the room and I knew that I believe that I'd hope that more people who also believe the things I do about why it should be removed and about creating a new legacy within Asheville and um, who are representing within Asheville to be within the candidate service? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. Here, go ahead, Marcus. No, go I, ahead. I would just, I would just say, as I would just offer this quickly, as 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 a as someone who's a non-native, when I when I when I moved here, I was really just stymied. To I remember driving through downtown um, Asheville and seeing this 65-foot granite obelisk. I'm thinking to myself, what the <laughs> hell is this? And so, you know, I, I began to investigate and discovered. This was a monument to this this Confederate um, uh, governor, slave owner, Zebulon Vance, who, in 1868, so he gives a speech. Brother, you remember this? He gives mm-hmm. a speech in Rutherfordton, wherein he he draws a connection between equality and black supremacy. So, so, so for Vance, justice for black people, um, or a more just American society, was the same thing as black supremacy. And I was just blown away by the fact that 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 that, that, that was such a towering monument to this person in the heart of a city that built that build itself to me as this sort of um, you know liberal progressive space. And so yeah. um, anyway, I, I just found that to be a very interesting and ironic um, reality of life in Asheville as a, as a transplant. But brother, go ahead. No, well, you know, Savannah, I, I see you that you're you're shaking your head in response to Marcus quite a bit. Um, I, I want to give you an opportunity to respond to his comments on this if if you if you have some comments about that in response. I was just gonna say that I concur. I felt the same way. And it was also like the more I learned about the history of Asheville and where we give money and where money comes from, the people that serve on certain things, the money it's that we choose to have, the fact that um, the population of color is like continuously dwindling, just made it even more like interesting that this place is marketed as this progressive, like liberal utopia in the mountains when we have all these, this irony, these contradictions and like mm-hmm. 
things that just don't mesh together that mm-hmm. we aren't really addressing too, which I thought was really interesting. This like blindness that people have to it mm-hmm. and that they just don't really see it or address it. And mm-hmm. they, it's just so crazy. <laughs> Well, you know, yeah, well, well, Savannah, let's think about it. Let's talk about this. You know, Marcus talked about, you know, his introduction to Zebulon Vance and who Vance was, you know, as a historian who studies, uh, you know, North Carolina history and the history of the American South. You know, these these are, you know, and as you we've all heard the saying that politics makes strange bedfellows and, you know, people uh, are constantly shifting where they are politically. Vance is an interesting figure for me especially studying this period, a period of history that I never really wanted to concentrate on and study, especially as I was coming through uh, my uh, my PhD. But it ends up that I have found this the, one of the most interesting and most engaging uh, periods of history just, just to study. And I think it connects with the questions that Marcus and I have been asking in so many of the recent shows that we've do- been doing about who are we and who do we wish to be. It, it seems to me that the Civil War was a reckoning point around those questions. I mean, that you know, Mitch Marcus, you'll remember, uh, made the statement that this is one of the. Uh, well, he he said the only country that was born out of an idea, and the idea that all men are created equal, and we know the rest of what the preamble of the Declaration of Independence says. But we've we've struggled to actually reach that idea, but progress over time has been made towards it, but we've had to really be willing to push and to push hard. So Vance is one of these figures when we dig deep into his history becomes very complex. Savannah, as you all were doing your work, so this was a 12 member uh, uh, panel uh, that that was seated by both the county and the city. As you all were doing the work, did you find as you began to do this work and especially the public engagement phase of this work, did you find that people were unaware or had a little less knowledge about who Zebulon Vance was than you thought? Uh, Was there some misunderstanding about who this figure was? I found that a lot of people of color were more aware of who he was than people who were not of color. Mm-hmm. And which I am not necessarily shocked by. Um, and I also found that a lot of people who wanted the monument to stay did not want it to stay because of like the historical ties necessarily, like the fact that it was they like had this deep love or appreciation for Vance. It was more of like aesthetic reasons, like, oh, it's really pretty. We like that it's here. It's one of the things that like I see Hex Wednesday when I like came to Asheville the first time. So I, I don't think that most people really knew who he was or aware of like the legacy or even like the legacy of that area where the monument is as well. Like the fact that it used to be like where slaves were sold. Mm-hmm. Now we have this monument to a Confederate general in this place where slaves were sold and separated from their families and all these atrocities. So okay. that was definitely very interesting. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, I'm not surprised that you find that there is, uh, you, you know, 
kind of um, an imbalance in having a real rich, deep knowledge about who these figures and who this figure was. I mean, I find that to be the case in many of the conversations and presentations that I that I do. Brother, I'll let me let you jump in here. Yeah, I'm, I'm also reminded, just, just tangentially, I'm also reminded, and I, I think these monuments are still in, in place, brother, but I, I think there are at least two other smaller Confederate monuments in the, in the vicinity of the Vance Monument, if I'm not mistaken. Um, yeah. And, and I, I wonder if those have been a part of this, the, the conversations. Probably not. Yeah. Um, but um, my guess will be no, because the Vance Monument is so conspicuous. Anyway, right. um, anyway, uh, I, I'm curious, Savannah, you know, this is so, you know, this is a major um, issue, local issue to tackle for a 12 person task force to tackle um, the Vance Monument. So I'm just curious to hear from you. Uh, how, how did the task force go about organizing itself to pursue this work, right? What was there, was there a strategy that you all shared? I mean, what, how did you all sort of organize around, around this, 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 this work? In my opinion, it was pretty easy because the work had already been done by the community. So our really big responsibility was only to make sure that their voices were heard. And um, I kind of feel like the task force was a step to kind of separate the power from the community and kind of say, like, all right, we hear what you're saying. Like, you want this to happen. You have this plan of what you would like us to do. And we, like, kind of hear you, but we're going to bring in this other people to make sure that they, like, we actually really hear you. We actually really know what you want. Like, <laughs> these are the things that are important to you. So for me, it was pretty easy for us to figure out what we need to do because they had already submitted um, organized and done like movements, created petitions, demanded that the city address this and create the task force. So for us, it was pretty much just like, all right, you guys said these things. We need to repeat them again so people can hear them again. You can say them. We'll condense it all for you, make it look pretty, and present it for you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And okay. I'm, 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 I'm also, I'm, I'm wanting to hear from you, Savannah, because, you know, I know that there are some people who were invested in allowing the monument to stand as it is, um, and who are vehemently opposed to the idea of removing it, uh, repurposing it. Um, so I'm, I'm wondering what, if you have a sense of what the broader uh, public response to the work of the task force um, has been since you served on it. Um, have you not noticed a response yet? Uh, but yeah, so just a sense of, so do you have yet a sense of, of how uh, the broader, the broader public um, is, is perceiving this, this, this project of mm -hmm. rethinking of the monument? Mm -hmm. and, and Savannah, before you, you jump in here, one thing I'll mention too, this is an important question, Marcus, that you're asking, because I'm curious about that as well. But I know that those two smaller monuments were removed, right? So, Oh, okay. they were they were removed. Um, the city was able to to take action to remove them. One was a monument, a smaller monument, I think, to Robert E. Lee. Mm -hmm. The the um, the obelisk, you know, has been a part of this much larger conversation. So I wanted to mention that those other two, that the uh, the other monuments that you were thinking about, Marcus, that they were removed by the city okay. and the county. It's just this one that has that that's this larger conversation, the Vance Monument, the larger conversation has kind of swirled around. But again, Savannah, to Marcus's question about public, what has the public response been to this? I think people are frustrated. Mm -hmm. I think um, I think that some people have kind of become apathetic to it just because of the fact that they don't really feel as though any real change is going to happen. Mm -hmm. 
So I think that was definitely the hardest part of organizing is like continuing to get keep people engaged in the conversation and um, holding true to what they know is right and what they know should happen. Because it gets to be kind of exhausting when you continuously say the same things and also listen to you. And if this is not the first year that people have, I think there was another task force for the Vance Monument that was formed where they had already told the city that they wanted it to be removed before this task force had been made. So this is not even the first time that we've done this whole process. I think that people are just kind of like a little bit frustrated. And then you have people on the other side that think it's just a waste of time because we don't really need it to be removed anyway. It's fine where it is. Like it's bringing in tourism within um, Asheville. So it's it's definitely divided, and I think people are getting kind of tired a little bit too. So you know, so 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 Vanna, I'm thinking about your background and your work because as I was looking at your bio, I see that you have been from a very young age. You had members of your family. I think your grandparents was it your grandparents or your parents who were involved with the NAACP, um, and so you have this background of kind of community engagement. I would say, Marcus, I would even use the word civic engagement here. The conversation that you and I had about the, the other show that we did on civic engagement. So you come from a family that has been actively engaged civically. Um, you have done community organizing out West, um, went to college out in Arizona, those places. So if, if you, if you in, in working with this task force, and I hear you saying that you got a good sense of apathy or just, uh, um, this kind of indifference that may exist around continuing these conversations. And, I, and I'm still, I'm even struck by the fact are, are reminded that you all had to do your public engagement around this in the middle of COVID. Mm-hmm. And so that made it even more difficult. But the opposite, the optimist in me wants to think that if you can get people around the table to have a conversation, that if you guide the conversation in a way that uh, invites every all, uh, all opinions around the table, that people will, you know, that apathy, maybe, maybe the apathy will fall away and people will become much more civically engaged in these conversations. Did this experience leave you hopeful that that is the, that that can be the case or are we doomed to kind of continue to walk this kind of path where there's just kind of indifference among the larger public about some of these, these questions that we are saying are important. I don't think it's complicated because like what you're talking about earlier about how we kind of just like talk and talk and talk and we talk ourselves kind of tired. I think that we spend a lot of time talking about the same things over and over again. And I also think that we pick and choose when to be um, you be equal and use like an equality lens and when we want to like use equity. And I think that in these types of situations, all voices don't need to be weighted equally. So we really need to be centering the voices of the people who are most affected by these issues. So it's time for us to practice deep equity, not about equality. So I realize that everyone's going to have an opinion about it, and their opinion is great, but right now their opinion doesn't need to be centered. It needs to be centered to the people who are most affected by these things, who we want to continue to invite within our communities and our homes, because Asheville is, it's not just a city, it's your home. Mm-hmm. Like downtown is kind of like your living room. And if you go over to your friend's house and they have a Confederate flag in their living room, you don't want to stay at their house if you're like a person of color, like you'd feel uncomfortable. So 
you can have a conversation with them around like why you want, why you have the Confederate flag in your house and why you choose to display it there. But ultimately it's affecting them deeper than it is affecting you because of the historical ties to it. So you really should center their voice and their perspective of it and really come from a place of listening and being open to making change instead of just being grounded in your viewpoint of that we're justified. We all need to be like, have our opinions and like X, Y, and Z weighted equally. It's not really the time for that. So I hear, so, so, so Savannah, do I hear a glimmer of hope there? Oh, yeah. And okay. we can frame, reframe the way that we have these conversations. And I just have to say, for those of you in the audience who are unable to see us, my brother is shaking his head at me. Right? <laughs> Go ahead, here, Marcus. Here I, here, I, here I am, yet again, outnumbered by optimists. Right? <laughs> um, <laughs> but, Savannah, you used a term that I find really interesting. You used the term deep equity. Yeah. Um, and and I, I kind of uh, was drawn to that term because, you know, we hear this term equality bandied about all the time, everywhere. The same is true of the term equity. And I'm, I'm not sure that people always understand what they're talking about when they use this language of equality and equity. So could you speak a little bit about what you mean uh, when you use the term deep equity? Because this for me is, is, is kind of a new term. So deep equity, what is that all about for you, Savannah? Okay, so equality is that there are, we have a bag of cookies that we just bought from the store and we're gonna split them up equally amongst all five of us. So there's like 15 cookies, we each get three. But equity is realizing the fact that we also bought cookies last night. And when we bought those cookies last night, we didn't split them equally. And only two out of the five people actually got cookies. So three people haven't gotten any cookies in like a really long time. (laughs) And we continuously keep saying like, oh, next time we get cookies, it'll be equal. We'll split up differently, like whatever, whatever, whatever. But we never really do. So it's kind of like equity is realizing the fact that things have happened outside of this one moment and realizing that you have to do different actions to make it so that we can move towards equality. Very interesting. Oh, interesting. So equality, oh, yeah. I think, is, sorry, mm-hmm. we think about equality a lot within, like, isolation. We think that, like, oh, we can just be equal all of a sudden. But we don't think about the fact that there are things that made it so that we had to get to this point where we're asking that question of how can we have equality now? Because there is not equality. So you can't just all of a sudden just be equal within a society that's been based upon people not being equal because they're so disadvantaged and they've been so pushed away from the center into the margins that you have to kind of put aside certain people for a little bit in order to move them towards a place where we can begin to be equal and have an equal society. Well, interesting point. So for those of you who are just joining us, you're listening to the Watterson Harvey Show from Blue Ridge Public Radio. We're going to take a short break. Please stay with us. Welcome back to the Waters and Harvey Show. Our guest today is Savannah Gibson. She is a member of the Vance Monument Task Force, and we've been talking about their work. So, Savannah, again, thank you for being here. One of the questions that I have as we think about your work as a member of this of the task force, and not just you, but the entire task force, is 
So what was the final recommendation? And, and was it hard for you all as members of this uh, of the task force to kind of come to a consensus among yourselves about, you know, what that recommendation would be? We ended up deciding um, that the monument should be removed. Um, and I think there was only one person who voted for it not to be removed, which I think was great because when we first did our vote, it was kind of more evenly split. But as we began to talk and as we began to realize that this is not about necessarily what we individually as task force members want to happen, it's really about us centering the voices of the African-American community and what they would like, we realized we really didn't have another choice other than to vote for it to be removed. Because Mm -hmm. within what we had been tasked to do in the written document, it says that we have to center this group of people's voices. This is what they told us they wanted. This is why we're here. This is the only thing we can do. Especially after looking at the history and things like that, it just became even more clear. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and Savannah, I've been thinking a lot about uh, this whole question of, of, of Confederate monuments and what should be done about them. and Should they be removed? Should they not be removed? Um, and I, I'd like to throw a question out there um, for you to consider. I mean, you don't have to answer, but it's just something that I'm thinking about Um, um uh, given that uh, the task force has recommended that the monument be removed. Um, wh- what do you think removing the monument accomplishes ultimately, right? Because it seems to me that this is that th- this is this is the kind of the kind of decision that moves in the direction of some form of social justice, right? If we can use that term, <laughs> you know, um, broadly. Uh, but do you have a more specific sense about of, of what um, maybe of, of what the task force thinks that removing this monument accomplishes in the local community? What what work does it do for the local community? I think more so than anything else, it lets people know that we care, that we're listening to what they want, and that we're willing to realize that we haven't always been great and our we've made bad decisions, but we're willing to move towards a better Asheville and a better community that is more accepting and um, comfortable for everyone that lives here. I think that's like the main thing. And I think from that, it really will empower people to continue to be active and civically engaged within Asheville um, and continue to try to make change, um, want to stay within our community more so than anything else, I think, as well, because they feel as though they're valued members. And another thing, too, is it will help to bring in more people, I think, too, and like tourists, like, which is one of the things I was thinking, too, is that African-American people have a, a lot of money within our communities. We spend a lot of money when we travel. So removing a monument that is dedicated to a Confederate and a governor is a credit person and um, member of the Confederacy and a slave owner um, from our city center and instead replacing it with either a piece of art that's been like designed by our community or a memorial to another person of color that we think is really important to our community will help to draw people in to Asheville that were not already traveling there. Yeah. I'm sure in like um, where they put in Alabama, I'm sure they had a lot of new tourists because they have that um, museum to the lynching museum mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And they probably had like an influx of people coming in to travel to see that, that they didn't have before. So it's mm-hmm. it's better. It's good for our economy. It's good for empowering our communities. It's good for creating a new legacy. It's just a win-win, in my opinion. <laughs> and and I, I think this really has the potential to, I'm, I'm not sure what you think, Darren, but I think this has the potential to change the atmosphere of the city because this is a monument that's been there since, I think, 1896. So, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, it, it has been very much a, a part of the um, of the, the atmosphere and character of Asheville for, for well over a century. Mm-hmm. So we'll see what happens. Yeah, and in, in thinking, Marcus, you know, Asheville has a long history. I mean, it's uh, the the township itself. It wasn't Asheville, but as Morristown, mm-hmm. founded in 1793 in that period. So the space is the place has existed for a long time. And Marcus, you making that reference to you know how long the monument itself has been there. I'm just reminded it hasn't always been there. And I think about one of the um, I think about the earliest the earliest painting of Asheville, which was done in the 1850s by Robert Scott Duncanson, who was one of the most famous landscape uh, painters um, that the country has produced, especially in the 19th century. And to think that he was African-American himself. That is the earliest painting in the 1850s that Robert Scott Duncanson did of the of the township that became that was by then Asheville. And it's interesting to think about the landscape of that picture and to think that there is no monument that was there at the time. So it's not pictured in his painting of Asheville. And so the monument hasn't always been there. We, we have a tendency to think that these things have always been. But, you know, and Marcus, I also think about, you know, uh, the fact that, you know, when you think about about the founding generation of this country. They were charged with the responsibility. Savannah and Marcus and I have talked about this quite a bit. They were charged with the responsibility when they went, uh, their charge when they went to Philadelphia was to try to shore up or improve the Articles of Confederation. But they got there and decided to do something different. And I think I look at that and say, this can stand as an example to us in, in today's time to say, okay, we don't have to always stick with uh, legacy and, and tradition. And Marcus, I, I think of the conversation that we had with uh, with Dr. Clint uh, Wilson, who was uh, on the show, one of the Friday fellows, and when he said that he he's troubled sometimes by whether or not he's too attached to legacy and does it kind of restrict him. And sometimes we allow this to restrict us as a community as to what it is that we can, we feel we can and cannot do. So Savannah, I'm thinking here, you know, now now, now that you all have made a decision for removal and you have presented this to uh, the elected officials who will be charged with making a decision, there's some now who are talking about uh, repurposing it. Did you all take up that conversation? And and what what is your what was the um, the the task force position on this idea of repurposing the monument? Uh, we definitely discussed that and. There was a split between people who felt that it would be best to repurpose it and save money that could possibly be used for something else. Um, I personally felt that it would be best to remove it. One, because I feel that there's no way that you can change the monument to an extent where it's unrecognizable and where people aren't going to be remem- reminded of the legacy of what it stood for. I just don't think it's possible unless you like, I don't know what you would do. Honestly, I guess you could like cut it in half and like 
friends around, but I mean, it's an obelisk, it's a stone obelisk. Like, how, how much can you really change it where you can't right. recognize what it was before? Mm-hmm. And then I also think that in a in a funny way, it would kind of be kind of perfect for us to repurpose it. Because I think that's kind of like what we do <laughs> with most of the problems that we have that are like mm-hmm. racial issues is we kind of just like cover them up and like <laughs> mm-hmm. change a little bit instead of actually addressing it and just getting rid of it. Mm-hmm. So I thought that'd be kind of funny. Like if we did do it, it's like, oh, that's perfect. So we do for everything else that has to do with like racial mm-hmm. issues or inequality of the United States. Mm-hmm. We just kind of like dress it up, make it a little bit different, and then represent it the same mm-hmm. way. So, like, we were, weren't enslaved anymore, but then we got Jim Crow. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, like, we were able to vote, but then they had all these, like, tests and, like, tests and stuff that you had to do. Mm-hmm. Only certain people could vote. So it was, I felt it was kind of fitting. Right. But I think that the best thing to do in order to move forward and to heal as a community is only for me. Right. You know, one of the things I think about here, Marcus, too, as I as I listen to Savannah and I think about the larger conversation that we're having here and, and Savannah, I'm hearing I'm, I'm interested in hearing uh, from you, you know, in a larger sense. You know, what does this say about power writ large in, in, in who who uh, has power when it comes to the construction of, of our national, local and state level narratives of, of, of our history? But, Marcus, I can't help but think of what Mitch Landrew actually said that there's a difference between remembering because some people said this is erasing history. We have those who say you're erasing history. No, you're not erasing it. It's always going to be there. Um, but Mitch Landrew addressed the issue of the difference between remembering and revering. Right. And I don't think in reverence and, you know, showing reverence. So I think Savannah, I, I, as I think about that, I think that we as a society, Marcus, you know, you, you know, correct me if you think I'm wrong here, uh, but I think this goes to the heart of the questions that you and I have been asking about who are we and who do we wish to be? What is it that we want to revere um, as we think about who we want to be uh, as a country? It, do we want, you know, is is there is there some goal that we're working towards as far as community and, and nationhood is is actually concerned? Yeah, and I think you know this. This raises the question of uh, um, brother. Earlier, you were talking about uh, attachment to legacy, and and it's okay to make decisions. You know, maybe within the context of a task force such as the one that you worked on, Savannah, to make a decision to um, to leave behind um, some legacies, right? Um, that that have been harmful for for some communities. Um, but I, I think also of other places in the country where where similar decisions have been made, right? So three years ago. Um, there was a monument in Harlem, New York, to, J, to Dr. J. Marion Sims, who's considered the, fa- the father of modern gynecology. Uh, but what was problematic about Dr. Sims was that he was known to have performed um, surgical procedures against um, enslaved Black women against their will. Mm-hmm. And so a decision was made in Harlem to remove that statue um, and relocate it. And so, you know, it seems that we really are at a, at a moment, um, at a kind of uh, inflection point in, in, in the country's history where we really are rethinking the question of legacy. Mm-hmm. And also, I, I think the question, again, of, 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 you know, what legacy serves who, right? Mm-hmm. So, so who is served by certain legacies? Who is harmed by by the same legacies, and so I think the work, I think the work of the task force is is that directly addressing that All question. Right. All right. 
And, you know, in Savannah, Marcus and I have these conversations constantly, you know, as trained uh, uh, academics, you know, we and especially in the field of the human, you know, in the humanities and the liberal arts and that that area of uh, of uh, of academic pursuits, you know, not in the sciences and technology. Marcus and I have a tendency to really dwell on uh, kind of philosophical ideas and people people tend to forget that philosophies that philosophy markets, you know, is very important because there's a philosophy that moves us all. We generally don't think about it. So it's interesting, even in this conversation, as I've listened to Savannah, that uh, and and Mitch Landrew made this point as well, that it seems that we have to get out of the realm of, of being philosophical about this and really to get people's attention to kind of say, look, let's think about the economics of this, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, and to be quite frank, that sometimes bothers me. You know, it bothers me that the only thing that it seems that we can do to get people to really Think about it in a different way is to go to the economic realm. And here again, I've I've gone throughout most of this show without talking about Alexis de Tocqueville. But again, this is one of the one of the things that Tocqueville addresses. And he says that he found highly problematic about America, even in the 1830s. Yeah. So, you know, I don't know if you have a response to that, you know, Savannah, but, you know, I can't help but I would think say about that. that. I think that. In America, to be equal has always meant that you had access to capital. And so the reason why we always go to money and economics when we talk about these things is that's that's the only thing that matters. Mm -hmm. And when you show that your community has money and is equal, then that's when they listen to you. Mm -hmm. That's why I always shift there. And it's, it's our societies, that's what it's based upon. That's what we value. We don't really value people we value what people create, which is like money and commodities that they're we're able to use. And that's where you actually get your power from within our society. And I think that's why it's the easiest thing to sway people on is because that's what really is most important for people. And that's why the conversation always goes that way. Right. Well, Savannah, I, I tell you that I think that is a powerful point to end, to end this conversation on with you. I mean, personally, I want to thank you, especially as a person, a, a young a young voice in this conversation. I can't help but think of my own sons and Marcus. I can't help but think of Malia uh, as well being involved in the conversations with us, hearing the, the younger generation and what it is that they have to say, I think is important. This was a huge task for you to take on. And I and, and I'm all right. You became chair of, of this commission, right? You chaired the the, uh, the task force, right? I chaired so, the removal subcommittee. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, yeah, this you know, this is a huge, this is a huge undertaking. And so um, thank you for being bold and courageous enough to take on the work. And I, I, so thank you for joining us today as well. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. I'm glad I got to be here. All right. Great. Great. Well, again, we want to thank you all in the audience for being a part of this conversation, Marcus. You know, I could stay here for the rest of the day, just continuing to kind of, you know, unpack a lot of what Savannah had to say. Um, And again, Marcus, I can't help but think it it really brings me back to those framing questions that we have been asking. You know, I think about 
the Declaration of Independence itself, because, you know, we've had conversations with people like uh, Dr. Stephen Nash, who mm-hmm. talked about even in this period, that period of our history in the Civil War and Reconstruction, that Lincoln, even when Lincoln's elected to office, he talks about the restrictions that the Constitution placed on him. But by the time he gets to Gettysburg, he is beginning to reference the Declaration of Independence itself. And Steve, if you remember from that conversation, said that as he sees it, that that Lincoln saw the Constitution as the frame, but the golden apple in the middle of the frame was the Declaration itself. And this is the ideas. Do we really believe um, that all men are created equal and should have those God-given rights that uh, that Jefferson said in the document were inalienable, um, or the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Do we really believe that as a, as a community, as a state, as a nation? And is that what we're, we're wanting to work for? I don't know what you think about that, but that's what comes yeah. to mind. I, I don't know. I mean, I know that James Madison, uh, one of the framers of the Constitution, was very clear in, in naming American slavery as the country's original sin. Mm-hmm. Uh, what does that mean? Um, we, we mentioned economics earlier. I think about the fact that in 1863, um, collectively, America, uh, Black slaves were worth more than $3 billion dollars mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right and uh and we're and we're having a conversation about whether or not monuments to slavery should be removed but yeah i brother your, your point is well taken I, I think these monuments are about power memory and economics right and right. the question becomes you know and legacies. And the question right. becomes, you know, what do we do about that? Right. So again, we want to thank you all in the audience for joining us. Thank you for being here. We'd love to hear your feedback again. And Marcus and I want to remind you that the Waters and Harvey Show is produced at Blue Ridge Public Radio in Asheville, North Carolina, in partnership with the Institute for the Promotion of Human Understanding. And you can listen to our podcast on BPR.org, the BPR and NPR One mobile apps, and on Apple Podcast and Google Play. Follow us and get in touch on Facebook and Twitter and write us at whshow at bpr.org. And we'll look forward to talking to you next time. Take care.